Hello and welcome to Frank Skinner's Poetry Podcast. This week, Martin Bell. I know what you're thinking, but why don't you just trust me? He's a pretty special kind of a guy and a sort of a classic 60s, 70s kind of a poet. He taught at Leeds Polytechnic, Martin Bell. I should say that his dates are 1918 to 19. 78. Yeah, Leeds Polytechnic. I went to Birmingham Polytechnic myself and I'm a great champion of the polytechnic system, proper working class higher education. And one of his students said of Martin Bell, and I quote, the poet, hunched over his beer, chain smoking, talking about poetry, always and most intensely talking about poetry. He sounds great. Martin Bell, he was a member of a thing known as The Group, which was a a group of poets who would get together. And this sounds very courageous. This happened sort of between 1955, 1965. They would send their poems into the group in advance so they could read through, make notes think about them and then the poet would step into the lion's den and the rest of the group would analyse what they had done. Can you imagine it? I don't know if this particular poem I'm going to talk about today got the group treatment but anyway I discovered it in Penguin Modern Poets which is a series which I've mentioned a few times on these podcasts If ever you see any in a uh, second-hand bookshop, grab them because there is always gold. This uh, particular edition is from 1962, Penguin Modern Poets number three, George Barker, Charles Causley and, of course, Martin Bell. And the poem I want to talk about today is called Ode to Groucho. Now, we have discussed odes briefly before in Keatsian terms. An ode is often a celebration of something and sort of the speaker's deeper thoughts on that which is being celebrated, be it a famous person, a military hero, a nightingale, a west wind... Or an old pot. Anyway, this one, Ode to Groucho, is obviously about Groucho Marx. I can't think of any other Grouchos. So it's in three parts, invocation, presence and apotheosis. Don't be put off by that. Martin Bell is, I I would describe him as a working class poet, but he's not afraid to show his learning and his knowledge and love of poetry and he does it throughout this poem even while celebrating the great comedian Groucho Marx. If you've never seen a Marx Brothers movie at least go and have a look on YouTube at some Groucho Marx greatest hits. He is the classic fast-talking comic answer for everything very dishevelled, very disrespectful, and um, in some ways an unusual choice for an ode, but in other ways 
perfect. Okay, so this first section, invocation, consists of two stanzas. The first stanza, an invocation you will know, is when a poet at the beginning of a poem, like Milton does in Paradise Lost, for example, calls to the muses to help him, these spirit figures, these patrons of poetry, and says, help me with this, help me to give of my best and to write the poem that I know I can with your help. And so the first stanza is sort of about what the poem should be. So it's a bit of, uh, a bit of preparation for the poem proper. I'm just going to give you the first four lines. Pindaric, a great gore-blimey ode soaring on buzzard wings, ornate or tottering titanic on feet of clay. It would have to be, to be adequate. Right, so this is what it needs to be in the speaker's opinion. Pindaric. Now, we're straight in with a classical reference. A Pindaric ode is of the kind written by the classical poet Pindar. The only thing is that in the late 17th, early 18th century, people started writing Pindaric odes on the belief that Pindar's odes were quite loose, quite irregular, and gave you a, a lot of scope for freedom and experimentation. It was not Actually true, Pindar's odes were in fact quite formal, so the whole thing was a slight mix-up, but that kind of works in a poem about Groucho Marx anyway. Pindaric, a great gore-blimey ode. So what he's saying is, I want this poem to be irregular and loose and free because that's what Groucho Marx was like, I guess. It should fit the subject. Soaring on buzzard wings, ornate or tottering titanic on feet of clay. Tottering titanic, you can almost feel it staggering about. Soaring on buzzard wings, so of course I want it to be this great gore-blimey ode. I, I need to define gore-blimey, especially for our young listeners. Try listening to My Old Man's a Dustman by Lonnie Donegan. A, uh, an old song in which he declares that his father wears gore-blimey trousers. Gore-blimey, quite shabby, down at heel. So he's saying here, Pindaric, so irregular, loose. And I think because Martin Bell knew a lot about poetry, he would know that there'd been a misunderstanding in the 17th and 18th century and would probably enjoy the fact that people were trying to give their poetry some sort of classical kudos and actually getting it wrong. He would have enjoyed that bursting of the intellectual bubble. Pindaric, a great gore-blimey ode. So this is what he thinks this thing should be. It should be irregular and maybe it should burst a few intellectual bubbles. And also, it should be a bit down at heel and a bit shabby, just like Groucho was. Soaring on buzzard wings, not eagle wings, as things so often saw in classical poetry, 
buzzard wings a bit more ragged, a few feathers missing, a bit uglier. Ornate, so yeah, that's fine. We can we can enjoy that, we can ornament it, we can live it up with the words. Or it could be tottering titanic on feet of clay. Feet of clay is when you come over as very grand, but in fact are quite flawed and weak. And the whole thing, in a way, is about that. It's about undermining the formal, the grand. I'm going to say it, the elite. Just give you those four lines again. Pindaric. A great gore blimey ode, soaring on buzzard wings ornate, or tottering titanic on feet of clay, it would have to be, to be adequate. So that's what it needs to be, to be adequate. So he's not aiming too high with this, but it needs to be adequate for the subject. And to be adequate for Groucho Marx, it needs to be irregular. It needs to be down at heel. It needs to be buzzard-like. It needs to have feet of clay. It needs to be a fake and a phony. But it can also be ornate. It can also be beautiful and interesting and exciting like Groucho's patter. So some other things he wants it to be. With the neo-Gromboolian overtones and the neo-classic gimmicks, pat gags, cadence from Morbally in platinum-plated timing. So, with the neo-Gromboolian overtones, that is a term used by Edward Lear, and it's about nonsense. So it's, it should have some nonsense because it's about Groucho Marx. Neo-Gromboolian overtones. And the neo-classic gimmicks, Pat Gags, cadenced from... Morbally. Morbally uh, is, was, uh, is shorthand for a poem called Hugh Selwyn Morbally, which was an Ezra Pound poem, which talked just like that about neoclassic gimmicks. He sort of criticises himself in it, Pound, as someone who's tried to raise the modern world up by using the classics to sort of educate people and has basically failed. And uh, he mocks himself for that. And uh, I'll, I'll just give you a little, I'll give you one stanza from Hugh Selwyn Morbley just to give you an idea of how he sees the modern world, this great classicist Ezra Pound. The age demanded chiefly a mould in plaster, made with no loss of time, a prose kinema, not, not assuredly alabaster, or the sculpture of rhyme. So the age demanded, the modern age in which Pound found himself writing, it wanted a mould in plaster, it wanted something cheap and quick, made with no loss of time, a prose kinema, it's an old term for cinema, so very prose, very populist and easy to understand. No, not assuredly alabaster. It doesn't want alabaster, a very expensive, permanent kind of a stone. It wants plaster. And it doesn't want, as he says at the end, all the sculpture of rhyme. It doesn't want rhyme, sculpture, something permanent and beautiful and crafted. That's not what the modern age wants. It wants a mould in plaster 
and it needs to be prose rather than poetry. So that poem is basically mocking himself, mocking the modern world, and using classical terminology and classical ideas as a weapon in that. And so neoclassic gimmicks, pat gags, cadence from Morbelly. Pat as in sort of glib. So, yeah, I'm just, I'm just taking material from that well-known poem. And already, and this is the first instance, I guess, of he's very keen to put Groucho Marx among the poets. He wants to put him in that company. He wants to make him a revered figure in some way. Pat Gag's cadence from Morbelly in platinum-plated timing. You know, I'm loving stuff like tottering Titanic and platinum-plated. I do like a bit of alliteration. In platinum-plated timing and tendrils convolvulating to clutch the dirty cracks and hold the house up. So I want it to be all wordy and clever and funny so that the tendrils of all those ideas and all those words and all that use of language, including the alliteration and the classical references and the literary references, I want them to be like tendrils convolvulating, all sort of intertwining to clutch the dirty cracks and hold the house up. So so it'll sort of cover all the weaknesses of the poem with my fancy references and my clever use of language, etc. Okay, that's the first stanza. That's what he wants it to be. And then he compares it, not directly, but this is what he seems to be doing. He starts to move towards a vaudeville theatre, vaudeville being the American equivalent of music hall, a sort of populist entertainment which included a lot of double entendres, sentimental songs, knockabout comedy, ladies in scanty clothing, people. There was one act I read about in vaudeville who would take a stepladder on stage. He was fully dressed in evening clothes, very, very posh. And he would take the stepladder on stage, climb the stepladder, put his hands behind his back, jump off the ladder and land on his head. He would then stagger to his feet and walk off, and that was his act. So it was a a place of strangeness, the vaudeville theatre, as was the British equivalent. Oh, flaking palladian palladium is the first line. I have to make sure you're getting these words because they're quite similar. Oh, flaking Palladian, Palladian being a style of architecture popular in the 18th century, columns, pillars, that kind of a bit sort of Elvis's Graceland. Oh, flaking Palladian, Palladium, and Palladium being a typical name for a theatre, but it's flaking. So again, it's following that idea of it has to be buzzard wings and it has to have feet of clay, and it has to be a gore-blimey ode. Nothing can be truly grand in this poem because Groucho Marx's entire thrust, his entire motivation 
is to undermine and to mock any attempt at grandeur or power or importance. Oh, flaking palladium, palladium on a backcloth rattled by umpar. All our nostalgias. Hey there, the old vaudeville circuit, proscenium buttressed with brutal truths. So, on a backcloth rattled by umpar. What a fabulous image. The backcloth at the rear of the stage and that being rattled by an umpar band. Da, 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 da. So, it's, it, you're already getting an idea of the sounds and the sights of a vaudeville theatre. All our nostalgias. Hey there, the old vaudeville circuit. Hey there, I think being a typical greeting of someone bursting on stage trying to win over the crowd. But then proscenium buttressed with brutal truths. So proscenium is the proscenium arch, which is above the stage, which, which frames the artist's. Proscenium buttressed. Again, we're at a, an architectural reference. It supported this proscenium arch with brutal truths. So now we get into the, the point of vaudeville is that, yes, it's comedy and it's entertainment, but often there's a dark underbelly. And it's a bit like uh, the fool in King Lear. There's comedy, but often there is quite painful truth also included where sleep myths lean in manneristic attitudes chalk white in the chastest not easy to say in the chastest diction sleek myths and i think he's talking now about the performers sleek myths lean in manneristic attitudes. So they come on, and of course it's a performance. They are mannered. They want you to see them in a certain way. They develop their attitudes to say things about themselves. Chort white in the chastest addiction. Chort white being the slap they wore, the makeup. Chastest addiction. So I think... Partly a reference to the use of the double entendre, the idea that what they're saying is on one level clean, but has also got dirtier stuff going on underneath. But also, I think, chaste as in uncomplicated, straightforward. Rightio. Sequined with glittering metaphysicality. I mean... Isn't this good? If you've got any interest in the theatre or entertainment, the idea of going to a show and seeing people who are sequined with glittering metaphysicality, metaphysicality being something other than the physical, something bigger going on, sequined with glittering metaphysicality. There's a suggestion that great truths are being exhibited at these vaudeville theatres. Sequined with glittering metaphysicality and massive ambiguities, endlessly rocking a whole way of life. And I think the ambiguities would include those double entendres, those things that are said 
which say many, many more things under the surface, often quite dark and sexual, endlessly rocking a whole way of life. So the establishment, the normal, is being rocked and shaken by these sleek myths, these, these characters with their chalk white faces who were saying things that you didn't hear said outside of that theatre. That's the first section. Now, in presence, it's almost like Groucho Marx has walked on stage now. Presence, P-R-E-S-E-N-C-E, -E -E, is here. Here comes Groucho. We've set up the kind of poem it should be. We've set up the, the environment. And now here comes Groucho. What you had was a voice to talk, double talk faster. Twanging, hypnotic, in an age of nagging voices. Now, this is what Groucho Marx is famous for, is, is double talk, as they called it. That very quick, rapid comedy. Bang, bang, bang. Lots of laughs, lots of jokes, feed lines, punchlines. But like a machine gun, rat-a-tat. What you had was a voice to talk, double talk, faster, twanging, hypnotic. It draws you in and there is a real rhythm to Groucho Marx's lines. You could almost whistle Groucho Marx. That regular cadence that he uses. Second time cadence has cropped up in this. And um, Pat Gag's cadenced from Morbley, I said earlier. It actually means rhythm. And I think that's what we're talking about here with the twanging hypnotic. There's that rhythm of the comedy. In the age of nagging voices, for me, that is Hitler. There may be others, there may be Stalin, there may be generally people, political, public figures who were destructive and negative. But Groucho Marx's great golden age was the 30s. And I think we're talking about his double-taught, faster, twanging, hypnotic voice in an age of nagging voices. Then you've got Hitler. And Hitler is all about power. He's all about we are special, I am special, the master race and all that. Whereas Groucho Marx is all about pulling the rug from under that. So he is talks double talk faster in his twanging hypnotic voice in an age of nagging voices and bold eyes to dart around as you shambled supremely muscular moth-eaten panther what a fabulous description of Groucho Marx confident but so down at heel so gore if you like, and bold eyes to dart around, that excitement of being funny and smart, as you shambled supremely muscular moth-eaten panther. And we back to those juxtapositions, just like the gore-blimey owed something down a heel and something grand and classical, or to soar on buzzard wings, 
something shabby and falling apart, but also in flight. And here, I mean, just a brilliant couple of lines. As you shambled supremely muscular, moth-eaten panther, and you can feel those sort of contradictions. To shamble supremely seems so odd. To be muscular and moth-eaten seems odd. But it's what Groucho Marx is about. It's about using that down-at-heel appearance as a way of fooling people into a position where you can then shoot them down. Comically, of course. Bit more description of Groucho. Black eyebrows, black cigar, black painted moustache. A dark code of elegance. Dark, I suppose, because it's all black, black, black. Groucho Marx used to use massive, thick, painted on eyebrows and a moustache on stage. And then when he went on to film, where obviously the camera makes everything more intimate, he stopped with it. Because if anything comes over in this poem about Groucho Marx, it's about the fact that he didn't care very much. And that is his heroic stance, if you like. Black eyebrows, black cigar, black painted moustache, a dark code of elegance in an age of nagging moustaches. If you remember before he had his twanging hypnotic comedy voice in an age of nagging voices, i.e. Hitler, and now he's got his black painted moustache, deliberately ridiculous, and it's contrasted with someone who takes himself massively seriously in an age of nagging moustaches again, Hitler, I think. To this comp- now it, it, this stanza ends with just what Groucho did, who his targets were typically in the films, in the sketches, in the radio shows. To discomfit the coarse mare, on poise the suave headmaster, reduce all the old boys to muttering fury. So the coarse mare, bit corrupt, very powerful, strong, overconfident, And then when he meets Groucho Marx, he's discomfited by him to unpoise the suave headmaster. So that headmaster who gives an appearance of tremendous poise and confidence, Groucho is there to unpoise him and to reduce all the old boys to muttering fury. Old boys suggest the old guard, the establishment. Yes, Those people. I nearly made a political statement there, put back at the last minute. Good for me. Last stanza of this second section. A hero for the young. So this is written in the 60s where Groucho Marx is already an old guy and I say he had his golden age, although it continued a bit, basically in the 30s. But there's something... Young means more here, I think. It means people who have not been corrupted by conformity, who retain that sort of youthful questioning. And that is, I think, uh, the young that he's a hero for, a sort of eternal young, a spiritual young. 
Hero for the young, blame if you wish the human situation. Subversivist of con men in an age of ersatz heroes. So blame if you wish the human situation. You, you can make it a bigger thing. But he was, and he may be the human situation created him in this slightly crooked, dodgy way. He was the subversivist. I don't think it's a word, but I'm going to say it. The subversivist of con men, the most subversive. And he always was in the films pretending to be someone he wasn't. For example, when he was a horse doctor pretending to be a high-powered surgeon. Subversivist of con men in an age of ersatz heroes, so fake heroes. Again, I think we're talking about Hitler and anyone like him. Be talkative and shabby and witty. Bully the bourgeois. Act the obvious phony. This is Groucho's manifesto. Be talkative and shabby. That's exactly what he was. And witty. Also exactly what he was. Bully the bourgeois. Yeah, anyone with any pretensions gets shot down. Act the obvious phony. And people always saw through him eventually in the movies. Not like someone like Hitler, who is a phony, you might say, but who covers it up very well and desperately. Groucho doesn't care. He's just doing it. Okay, the last section, apotheosis. Apotheosis, the sort of peak, the height of something, but also human being entering into the divine, if you like. And what Martin Bell does in this last section is put Groucho Marx amongst the great poets because he feels that he deserves a similar status. Now, this begins... God, I've, I looked at this two-line stanza a hundred times trying to work out what it meant. I'll give you my theories. Two main ones. Slickness imposed on a rough beast, a slouching beast and hypochondriac. Now, if you read poetry regularly, that might well trigger something for you slickness imposed on a rough beast a slouching beast and hypochondriac i'm reaching now for my wb yates collection and there's a poem in that called the second coming which uh, was published i think in uh, 1921 but i think wb yates wrote it in 1919 so it's very post-First World War. It's sort of mid-Irish Revolution and also mid a massive flu epidemic which almost killed his father and his wife. And it's about the fact that the world is falling to pieces. It's got a very famous... Uh, I'm using that word famous again about poetry. If you know Yeats, you'll know this bit. Turning and turning in the widening gyre, the falcon cannot hear the falconer. So the falcon's circle of flight is getting so wide it can't hear the falconer. It has no control. Maybe it's about 
mankind lose in touch with God or whatever version of God W.B. Yeats held at the writing of this poem, some strange mystical ancient Irish queen maybe. Turning and turning in the widening gyre, the falcon cannot hear the falconer. Things fall apart. The centre cannot hold. The whole world is collapsing around our ears. You can see why someone who's been subjected to world war revolution and pandemic might be thinking that. And then the fourth line, mere anarchy is loosed upon the world. Anarchy. That seems to be the big terror. No order, no law, no rule, just wild behaviour. He goes on later in the poem, surely the second coming is at hand. So you think, oh, it's the end time. So now Jesus comes and clears it up. But what Yeats or what the speaker in the poem sees walking through the desert is a bit more terrifying it's some sort of wrath beast approaching. doesn't seem to be bringing order. It seems to be bringing something much more menacing. And famously, if you're a poetry fan, it ends with these two lines. And what wrath beast? It's our come round at last, slouches towards Bethlehem to be born. So this wrath beast... It's our come round at last. It's been waiting for this. It slouches, makes it sound very animalistic, slouches towards Bethlehem to be born. So it's a sort of an antichrist figure. That's what W.B. Yeats feels that period of history deserves and what it's going to get. Some terrible antichrist. So... In an ode to Groucho Marx, you think, well, where does that fit in? Well, I think that the thing to hold on to is that mere anarchy is loosed upon the world and the speaker's terror at that idea. And I think Martin Bell is saying there's no need to be afraid. Groucho Marx himself is mere anarchy loosed upon the world. He doesn't have, he doesn't follow the rules. So slickness imposed on a rough beast. So that that double talk, that twanging, hypnotic, comedy, rhythmic voice, the, the cigar, the sort of down-at-heel suit, but it's all very slick and smart and clever and funny. So maybe slickness imposed on a rough beast. So Groucho Marx is the rough beast now but he's smartened himself up a bit so he's not so scary a slouching beast an hypochondriac so the slouching beast and hypochondriac i mean really i'm not going to pretend i know what all this means slickness imposed on a rough beast i think means that this beast approaching us is not going to look terrifying this representative of anarchy He's probably going to have black eyebrows, black cigar, black painted moustache is what he's going to have. That's what anarchy can be. And he does slouch, Groucho Marx. He walks in a very strange manner. But slickness imposed on a rough beast, a slouching beast and hypochondriac suggests that the beast is at the centre of him. If the beast is anarchy, 
he is that beast, but he's a very smart, quick-talking, comic version of it. And the hypochondriac, I think, could be W.B. Yeats, who was quite a famous hypochondriac, but also suggesting that he's afraid of something which isn't that scary, that it isn't the Antichrist that's coming representing anarchy. It's Groucho Marx. It could mean that. It could also mean, and I'm going to throw this in, sleekness imposed on a rough beast. Again, it's the fast-talking guy with the internal beast, but a slouching beast and hypochondriac. Groucho did a radio show called The Hypochondriac when he played exactly that. And before he arrives at the show, he sends his anti-germs man in to spray the studio. It's a great bit when one of the cast say, oh, he's really now very, very um, germ-phobic. He doesn't kiss anymore. He stopped kissing completely. And another character says, well, his wife must be very upset about that. And they say, no, she loves it. It's the first time she's managed to keep her maid for more than three days. And... Um, I like it. Anyway, what I'm saying to you is there's definitely a reference to The Second Coming by W.B. Yeats. There is much slouching going on. But I don't think it's towards Bethlehem in this case. I think it's towards the next victim of Groucho's fakery, comedy and general subversivist conmenery <laughs> you know when you're into a thing that you're saying verbally and you think I wish I could get out of this but I've got to complete it okay sleekness imposed on a rough beast a slouching beast and hypochondriac so yes the beast is coming the beast of anarchy but don't worry WB Yates it's not as bad as you thought with your mad hypochondriacal fears and anxieties. It's actually Groucho Marx and he's hilarious. Okay, great anarch, totem of the lot, all the shining rebels. And now this is the great celebration of the great Groucho. Great anarch, in other words, the, the symbol of anarchy, making sense, I think, of that reference to the second coming. Totem of the lot. Groucho is symbolic. He's representative of all the shining rebels. That's what he's saying here. And then we get some examples of those rebels. And it shows the many forms that rebellion can take. And also it places Groucho amongst the poetic and the classical greats. Here we go. Here's the list. Prometheus, of course, and that old pauper refusing cake from Marie Antoinette and Baudelaire's fanatical toilette and Rombo striding off to Africa and Auden scowling at a cigarette. OK, so Prometheus, of course, this is first in the list of shining rebels. Prometheus stole fire from the gods on Olympus and gave it to mankind. Very rebellious. And that old pauper refusing cake from Marie Antoinette, I just think the French Revolution personified uh, the French Revolutionaries. 
that old pauper refusing cake from Marie Antoinette. So that is a more classical uh, revolutionary figure, if you like, a more classical shining rebel. And Baudelaire's fanatical toilette, Baudelaire, the French poet, um, Martin Bell was an expert on French poetry. His fanatical toilette, he was a famous dandy, Baudelaire. And um, he would spend all his money on things like a velvet waistcoat and starve. Thus was his rebellious priorities. And Rombeau striding off to Africa, another French poet, Arthur Rombeau, and he went to Africa very recklessly, gave up poetry, moved to Africa to make money, ended up selling arms in Africa. Just complete irresponsible recklessness, another form of rebellion. And then in a, in a more simple way, an Auden reference, of course, to W.H. Auden, scowling at a cigarette. Just the whole poetic stance, the whole poetic persona. OK, we're nearly there, guys. There's three more lines. The first two are this. Bliss was it, etc. Smartish, but fair enough. We stammered out our rudenesses. Okay, now, bliss was it, etc. Another poetical reference. In the prelude, his great autobiographical poem, William Wordsworth spoke of when he was in France at the time of revolution. It says here, bliss was it, etc. The full quote is, bliss was it in that dawn to be alive. But to be young was very heaven. So it was blissful to be in France at the time of the revolution. This was before the reign of terror, which somewhat put off Wordsworth. But to be young was very heaven. So as we've said before, a hero for the young is Groucho. And there's something about youth which takes very well to rebellion and freedom and all that. Bliss was it, etc. I think is part of the rebellious nature of this poem. I'm not going to make this a lovely grand quote from Wordsworth. I'll, people know it. Bliss was it, etc. It's slightly dismissive. Smartish, but fair enough, he says. So smartish, which can mean, you know, quick, but probably means, yeah, quite, quite clever. Fair enough as well. True. We stammered out our rudenesses. And maybe that's one of their rudenesses, is to be disrespectful to poets like Wordsworth. Someone whose youth, if we take in youth as an image of rebellion, certainly dwindled and he became the sort of grand old man of the English establishment. I still love him. And this poem ends on one last line. And it's, it's the last cry to Groucho Marx, O oh, splendid and disreputable father. And that is what Martin Bell sees Groucho Marx as. It's, it's that juxtaposition of what seems a bad thing and what seems a fabulous thing. And that is what's great about Groucho Marx, is the fact that he's so shabby, so dishonest, such a con man, such a crook. But it's all done with fabulous gusto and wit and couldn't care lessness. 
And that's what makes him a hero. He's amongst the poets with his twanging, hypnotic double talk because that too challenges the establishment. The powerful, the elite, the way great poets often do. Oh, splendid and disreputable father. And it ends, as I say, on one of those juxtapositions. To be splendid and also to be disreputable is something isn't it? I'm going to give you one more quote about Martin Bell. This has been a tough one, I think, but I love this poem. I'd love you to go away and read it because um, it's a thing you need to wallow in a bit. One last quote, and this is from Anthony Burgess, who uh, you may know wrote A Clockwork Orange and uh, became a very successful novelist. And he was a very good friend of Martin Bell. And this was how he described Bell. Shabby bad-toothed, doomed to die of drink and be posthumously neglected. And I think um, they probably all came true, those predictions, and he has been posthumously neglected, and I'm trying to do my bit to rectify that. And it was a very small bit, but check out Martin Bell, even if you can only find him in uh, Penguin Modern Poets number three. There is gold there. So that's it for another series of Frank Skinner's Poetry Podcast. Don't forget you can find all of the previous series and episodes from wherever you get your podcasts. <laughs>